Okay, this morning I'm di- I just want to share uh, my own personal brief thought before we uh, go forward what I, I, I trust God for from his presence that he has for us and, and his counsel for us this morning. <clears throat> but I, I was just thinking, and, and, I, and it was these scriptures that God brought to my mind this morning. And this is 1 Corinthians 14. And, and starting at verse 6 uh, to verse 11, it says, now, now, brethren, I come unto you speaking with tongues. Tongues here, again, just to make it crystal clear, are known foreign languages. There's, it's never an angelic language that, 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 that at all. It, it's literally nothing to do with that. Because as you know, when angels ever approached and they entered into the realm of men, like with Daniel and John, the beloved apostle, and many others, they spoke in a known foreign language. Okay, so when it speaks about tongues here, even in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, and even when it speaks again in 13 and 14 of that same chapter, when it says tongues there, you're going to see in certain translations where the word is italicized, that italicized word is unknown. Okay, it doesn't belong in the original. The word for known foreign languages is glossolalia. Okay, known foreign languages, and even the angels learn by the languages that God communicates to us. Okay, it's never any kind of gibberish or anything like that ever in the Word of God, ever one single time. There's no such thing as that. And the scriptures make it crystal clear. So, but in verse 6, it says this, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, and that just simply meant that, he's, that Paul was a polyglot. A polyglot is a person who knows so, several different languages. Okay? Several different languages. And you'll notice, even in the scriptures, is that known, for, is that known languages? <laughs> okay? So, Chinese might sound like gibberish because I don't know it, okay? But it's a known foreign language. It's always that way in the scriptures. There's no such thing as a second blessing in the scriptures ever. When you receive Christ, you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit instantly. It's not something that you get after salvation. It's crystal clear in the scriptures. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of Really, truthfully, a lot of nonsense, okay? A lot of extremely bad teaching. And if it's bad teaching and it's not God's word, it'll throw you back on self. And when we function in self, we know the enemy's directing us. Don't know why I'm saying that this morning. Didn't even think about it, but God does. So when Paul says, now, if I come speaking to you with tongues, glossolalia, known foreign languages, many, what will it profit you except I speak to you either by revelation? Okay, and revelation, or by knowledge, knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine. Now these verses have been twisted and turned and made into something that they don't even mean in the scriptures. Verse 7, and even, even things without life, giving sound, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, the tones, the meaning, really. How will it be known what is piped or harped? 
For if the trumpet, the trumpet here, we can always see you know, all the way back, even from Numbers, the 10th chapter, the, the people of Israel on their journey in the wilderness, which is a picture of the world system that they were never settled down in, ever. The temptation that God has, that, that God has is to get, not the temptation. God continually tests us to go forward and not settle down in this world. The enemy constantly tempts us to make things about this earth be our reality. We're passing through. 1 Peter 2.11 makes that crystal clear. We're strangers and pilgrims. We're passing through. We're not settling down. That would settle a lot of problems and struggles with believers if they only knew that, and, and we all need to know it and grow in it, all of us together. So, for if the trumpet, and the trumpet there in, in Numbers, the 10th chapter, it, it, it literally, they didn't do anything until they heard the sound of the trumpet, and this is a type of the Word of God. They didn't do anything without a specific revelation from the Word of God. That's what the, the trumpet there, and again, the trumpet, again, in Numbers, the 10th chapter, was made of was silver, two pieces of silver, and two can speak of separation, and God separates us from anything that's on this earth that's not of him through uh, the redemptive word of God by revelation, which is a type of the trumpet. And that's why even in 4 verse 1 of Revelations, he calls the church up in this sense, come up above, and I will show you what must happen on the earth, prophetic, the prophecy. And then it goes right into it. Furthermore, again, just to bring out crystal clear, the, the book of Revelations is an amazing and beautiful, beautiful treatise. Not so much an epistle, but a treatise, a prophetic truth. So in chapters 6 through 18, has nothing to do with the church because we've been called up, Revelations 4.1, we've been called up, we don't pass through the tribulation. And so prophecy has to do with God dealing with the earth. But you and I are settled on our foundation in Christ. So in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 14, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself to battle? If I don't have proper preaching and teaching through a proper revelation of the word of Jesus Christ, if I don't have that, am I even prepared? And even what I know, see, for instance, in Hosea 4 and verse 6, it, it, through the prophet Hosea, the, God was saying to, to Israel, my people are, are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And when you study that out in the original, it's not that they didn't know knowledge. It's that they knew it and refused to submit to it. There's where all our struggles are located. And there's where a lot of confusion. And furthermore, that's why by the grace of God, we need to have the foundation that Christ is in Matthew 16, 18 and 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. That foundation needs to constantly be established in our experience because our true position is Christ and we're settled on him as that foundation. And so he has to work that into the experience. The best thing we can do when God calls us is to come and hear the redemptive revelation of the word of God. It should always take precedence in all of our lives. So if the trumpet give an uncertain sound through bad teaching, very bad teaching, who will prepare himself for battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue 
by the tongue words easy to be understood. How will it be known what is spoken? For you will speak into the air. Who's the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2? 2? It is Satan. He's the prince and power of the air. He's the god of this world. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, and when it says god of this world in that particular those particular verses, it's the religious god of the world that harkens back to Genesis chapter 4 and verses 16 to the end. See? We will take what God gives us through the redemptive word, take it, and then just go right back into the world and live just like the unsaved. Because if we're not going forward, what are we doing? We're going back. <laughs> and that starts in our thought life, long before it enters into uh, an actual happening. So likewise, you accept you utter by the tongue words, easy to be understood. The word of God becomes easy because he'll give us the grace to do it that comes only from him, but we must be humbled constantly. Constantly, constantly humbled. That's a constant that happens with us. And it has to for us to experience the redemptive revelation of God's word experientially. So these words become easy to be understood when we submit our will and no longer the natural mind is interfering with the supernatural mind of Christ that's in us in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. For you will speak into the air. So in other words, if these words, if you're not taught and I'm not taught properly things, then what speaks to us are things from the air. Therefore, in verse 11, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I will be like, be unto him that speaks like a barbarian, or really an unsaved person. A barbarian, and he that speaks will be like a barbarian unto me. For, then what? Therefore, if I not know. So verse 10 says, there are, it may be so many kinds of voices in the world. There are many kinds of voices in the world system. And when my will isn't submitted, or I don't trust God emphatically for every single detail, then what directs me is all these different voices from the atmosphere under Satan. They come in and start interpreting things to me. And so there are many kinds of voices in the world, but none of them is without signification. Notice that? They're not without a purpose and a design. Because we know that in John 10, 10, A, the thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that we might have abundant life. And that abundant life is not only the life that God pours into us as a vessel, but he pours it out for others. So the abundant life is not just, all, and, and it's true and it starts individually, but it's poured out to abundance to many. So my life is not just about me. But boy, the enemy wants to make it that. When my will isn't submitted, or again, that I have bad teaching. And when I have bad teaching or no teaching, it leaves me in a place 
in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 to privately interpret the word of God. The only way we can privately interpret it as believers is in the flesh and not in Christ. The thoughts that I had about this this morning and just in my own personal life was there are so many other voices right now in this world system. Many. Multitude. There are many, many, many kinds of voices right now. All kinds of different voices in the world because they function under the prince and power of the air, Satan. There's many. And it's noise. There's a lot of noise and confusion through those many voices that cause many, many distractions. To get us distracted away from Christ and us as the vessel thereby lean on the weak vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and look away from the treasure, the treasure that Christ is as he leads us. And there are many kinds of voices. So right now, we, there's, there's only two options for us. It's to hear the voice of our shepherd, Christ, in John 10, 3 and 4, and in verse 27. It's only to hear that voice and that voice only. Because I, my only other option that, at that point Okay, And that's a point, and many of us have to be brought to a crisis. We have to be brought to a crisis point in our life for God to continue to speak to us and lead us forward. And he does that. And then he, again, in that crisis, when we submit to the grace in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, then we can enter into the only process that God has for us, and it's a process of grace, growing in grace and knowledge in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. But there are many voices, and my only other option is all these other voices. The noise and the confusion, all the thoughts and the confusion come in. And God, we know in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, is not the author of confusion, these other voices. They didn't have their beginning in him. So they'll never have an end, a proper end. Of course, at some point they will. And this is what was, God was bringing out uh, to me personally this morning. All these voices here, here, there's only one voice that we listen to. And that's the voice of our shepherd through the word and through submission to it. And there are many voices. Because right now there's a lot of noise. But soon... Soon, we're going to go to, to where many of our loved ones already are. <laughs> and there's no noise there. There's no other language heard. There's no other voice heard. There's no other language heard than a multitude of those that are Christ singing beautifully. And there's no noise. There is no noise in a worship song about Christ the Lamb. There's never any of the noise of the world that enters into that. And that's why even beats and tunes have to do with proper worship. No question about that. And so there's going to be a beautiful place where we'll never hear another thing again. And we'll be with Christ, number one, and be with all of our loved ones in an inseparable bond and union of unity in Christ that nothing ever again will separate. And there, there you're going to hear, and we'll hear, we'll be singing the choir. We'll be singing in the choir the Lamb's song. You'll never hear anything 
from there. You'll never hear anything about, and, and those that even God used, you just hear the lamb who flowed through them. You'll never hear anything else. You'll only hear him. We're headed to a place, some of us sooner than others. Some of us much sooner than others are going to be heading there and we'll fill our place in the eternal choir of the worship of God's Lamb. And he's training us for that right now. He's training us for an intimate, worshipful, not only song, but intimacy with Christ to which at some point nothing will ever disturb again. The music and the sounds there, they're beautiful. They flow perfectly because they're all about the Lamb. They don't have anything to do with this earth, the world system. People there are separated from it. And we have been separated from sin. We have been from the power of sin because Christ has dealt with that in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He has dealt with that based upon Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 12 to 14. He's already dealt with that. He's dealt with the power of sin. We don't have to sin. It's a choice. We don't have to disobey. It's a choice. But we can obey, and that's a will submitted to the love that God is in us that actuates in our obedience even our love for him. Even our love for him. And that's, again, that's in 1 John chapter 5. Those first three verses bring that out very beautifully. But we're headed to a place. We're headed to a to heaven, where, where all, the only sound we'll hear is the voice, is the, is the celebration and worship of the Lamb of God. And that's what he's training us for right now, an intimate fellowship with him in Revelations 2 and verse 17. And Jesus had to pass through to his glory, where he's glorified as the Son of Man, always and truly the Son of God. But now, in a, in a union with the Son of Man, they became one. And now he, as a man, is glorified with all of us in him positionally. And he's training each of us in the intimacy of his deep desire of loving us that he, that he has for us. And so everything about us right now is, yes, we're in the world, prophecy's being fulfilled, but we're on a foundation. It's the only thing we should build on is the foundation that Christ is in us individually. And everything else, if that, everything else on that foundation, and when it's a proper foundation, the storms, the, the storms, the storms that the enemy tries to manufacture against us in Matthew 7, 24 to, to, to 27, if we build our life, everything about us is built on our foundation, the storms come and it won't touch it. But if we build it on sand, and sand speaks of emotions there. And emotions can't think. They can only respond to the initiation of a thought life. So if I have bad emotions up one minute down the next, okay, if I do, it's because they're not built on a solid foundation that's immovable. Matthew 16, verse 18, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against one who is founded in Christ properly, experientially. And these are the truths, and we're headed to that place. No more noise, no more pain. And Jesus, to get the glory, had to pass through pain and had to pass through suffering. Righteous suffering, godly suffering, that's been apportioned to us in Colossians 1 and verse 24. Meted out and measured by the most intense wisdom and love 
never giving us more than we could handle in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Never. But yet keeping that keeping us in a place where we constantly need, our need to be, is to, is to receive the grace that's in him and he's in us that we need to submit to. Because we can't make a single adjustment in this world system apart from the grace that God has for us. Him, his son being in us. So getting back to, to, to prophecy and getting back to these things and uh, I'm just so looking forward to that time. But I don't want to miss the presence, his presence in the present by looking back or looking forward. You see, the enemy does everything he can in our circumstances and situations to get us away from Christ because we've said this and God has taught us this time and time again. Either my circumstances and situations will be my guide under the prince and power of the air or Christ will be my guide in the midst of my circumstances and situations. And there, there are many voices, many, those many voices will speak through our circumstances and situations to cause us to doubt. To doubt. Many. But there is one voice, and it's the only voice, it's the voice of grace and truth that leads us forward. That we're not being stationary. The enemy can get us to be stationary. Okay? okay, and stationary means I miss present. I miss the present presence of God in my own vessel. I miss it. And when I do, I start to either look forward or I look back. Usually when I don't want to go forward in God's way, I begin to look back. I begin to look back. And then I miss him presently. I miss him. So in these types here, in Genesis, we went into the different families and we couldn't go into them and we wouldn't even have the time to precisely go into them at this particular time. And we will. But we do know this, that, that by the time we get to the 11th chapter of Genesis, and we can see it crystal clear, we see there where God has called Abraham out of the air of the Chaldeans. He called him away. That's what he did. And that's what he's doing with us. And for God to do that, for, God, for us to go forward, okay, he has to separate us from natural family, from natural relationships. Not that you don't love them. Not that they don't love God and God loves them. But there has to be a separating process for God to do in the individual, apart from everybody else, what only God can do in that individual. Tony, what he can do. It's brought out again in Luke the 8th chapter. Look at it, look at it in verse 21 down through. And look at uh, Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. Je Jesus separated. Did he love his mother? Yes. But in, in any natural relationship, there was a separation. He had to separate from natural family. Not that you don't love them. No. But there has to be that separating, sanctifying process. There had to be. And that's what God had to do with Abraham for God to fulfill his call in Abraham as an individual. And when he did so, did he do it just for Abraham? Or was, was there a multiplication 
of the submission of his will, not only for God's, of course, for God's glory, his blessing, but for the multitude of blessings of a whole nation. What can one individual do with their will submitted to God? And does it have an effect just on the individual? Just like my sins, my sins never just affect me. First, it affects my relationship with God, first and foremost. Can't touch my position. Sin never touches position or family relationship in terms of the spiritual life. But it does affect and will stop and inhibit fellowship, intimacy with Christ. No question about that. But here, Abraham, Abraham received the divine call to go forward to Canaan. The land of promise. We are going forward to our land, the presence of God in Christ, where all the promises of God are yea and amen in 2 Corinthians 1.20, based upon 1 Kings 8.56 and, and Ezekiel 12 and verse 25 and Isaiah 55, 8-11. These promises and every promise that God ever made to man, okay, ever that he made to man, okay, was what? It was an unconditional promise based upon Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham received the divine call to go forward to Canaan. When he left, listen folks, when he left, not only his country, where he was brought up, his kindred, his family, but also his father's house. That's what he left. Now, Terah, who was the father of Abraham, did not carry out his intention to proceed to Canaan. He didn't. Why? Because he remained in Haran, where he grew up, where everything was familiar. Why did he not go forward? Why do we not go forward in trusting God where God has us? And this is why. Because in his native country, which, is, which here is Mesopotamia, his native country, he found there what he was looking for in the land of Canaan. <laughs> he found there, he thought he found in the world what he would need and not going forward, led by Christ into, into the promised land of an intimacy with Christ. And we're not to settle down here. See, the temptation is constantly for the Christian to take the word of God, but to settle down in the world and function in natural relationships. Christ cut himself off from that. He did. And so, even to this day, even to this day, Mesopotamia is a place of complete ruins. Did we hear that? Complete ruins. When we're not going forward, when we're tempted to not go forward, when we're tempted that way, and God never tempts, the only way that, the only way that temptation becomes an, an actual experience is when the believer functions in the flesh under the power of the enemy. Because blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he has tried, you see, God tries us. And at that moment, is it obedience or disobedience? Is it submitting the will and going forward? Not by sight, but by complete faith. Not by using circumstances and situations to become our reality, but Christ in the midst of them. That's my choice. That is our choice. But to go back is to go back to what? 
to ruins. To ruins. When, I, when I'm to go forward and, and, and I go back. Now there are, there were, and there are, and just want to make this clear, <laughs> to keep the enemy out <laughs> by God's grace and truth, there are natural family members that became born again, that are spiritual, that, that we can be involved in, and God does in measure. There's no question about that. So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. But I am talking, and God is talking to us with his counsel, about if we go and we seek natural family, natural family, outside of where God has placed us in a local assembly, and we, go, and we seek to go back to that, that is crystal clear, crystal clear. God wants to make that very clear to us. And of course, you know that Paul and anyone else, did, and, and those silver trumpets, they spoke the revelation of God, which became a personal rhema to them. You're to do this, you're not to do it. You're to stop here, you're to stay here, now you're to go forward. That's the whole principle of those silver redemptive trumpets in Numbers, the 10th chapter. There, so in the midst of ruins, there, when Terah did not go forward, there is where Terah died, and he was approximately the age of 205. Sixty years after the departure of Abraham for Canaan, he stayed there. He stayed there. Sixty-six. Man's number. Man's number. Satan always tempts with far less through the sight of circumstances and situations. He always tempts that there's more here than there isn't going forward because at least you can see this, but you can't see this. No, but God sure does, and we can trust him. Some think that faith, and I used to hear it this way, faith is a leap in the dark, and when I take that leap, God puts solid substance there to step on. That's never, ever, ever the description of faith. Furthermore, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the same substantiation of things hoped for, the evidence not seen. The most certain evidence we have and only certain evidence we have is to trust God, to trust Christ, to trust his word by faith and not by sight. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, to not look at the things which are seen, your present circumstances and situations, but at the things that are not seen because the things that are seen are temporal. Things that are not seen that God's doing in you, causing you to go forward and to trust him, are eternal. He's working into us eternal substance. So there, Terah dies. He dies. Then we get into all the promises, and we're going to skip. I want to skip all the way, and we will fill in as God leads us, as God leads all of us, and he's leading all of us, all of us together. Finally, we get to the 17th chapter of Genesis. The time we get there, Abraham is 89 years old. Because God did not fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham, Abraham, when he refused to believe him, okay, after his failure, he listened, listen to me, he listened to his wife Sarah. Men, husbands, Abraham listened to his wife Sarah, take your handmaid 
and bring children out of her because God is not going to fulfill his promise to you and me through me. No, and he wouldn't do it. He could only do it through supernatural work. And he listened to her, just like Adam did, to Eve in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Men, take the initiative. Men, in love, in pure love, not with legalistic fleshly works or foolish demands of the flesh. No, because she's the weaker vessel. First Peter, the third chapter, you can read it there. She's the weaker vessel. She's the flower that God's given you for you to nourish and, and nurture and to initiate life to her, not death, not doubt, not fear, not worry. And that can be picked up even non-verbally, by the way. There's a non-verbal communication. And so we see here that, he, that that's what happened when he submitted to her. Then there were 13 silent years where he, where he, he cut himself off through his failure. <laughs> he cut himself off for 13 silent years. And that's when God appeared to him. And when he did, usually, he ha- usually it takes him to reduce us down. He has to allow our own will. When, when grace and truth is not leading us, he allows our own backsliding in Jeremiah 2 and verse 19 to correct us, to bring us to a place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness. You, can, you and I can be sure of this. Oh, God, I have to learn this way for me. Oh, God. In Numbers 32, 23, your sin, your unsubmitted will and its effects will find you out. When he's waiting in Isaiah 30, verse 18, to be gracious. 13 silent years, and that's when God appears to him. And he is completely in self-help and self-hope. He's done. He quit. That's the place God has to lead us to to continue to go forward. So this covenant had been made with Abram. God made that. Listen, listen, God made the covenant based upon Christ between the Father and the Son. Again, that's propitiation and that's Genesis 22 and verse 8. Yet, Abraham, Abram remained without any visible sign of its accomplishment. That accomplishment would, have been, would be circumcision. Circumcision in its type is cutting off the flesh because that's what gets in the way of God fulfilling his promises. That what gets in the way from the position entering into the experience of the believer that's in Christ. That's what gets in the way. And it's usually, it's usually when, when God's order is not honored. <laughs> Husbands, listen, I would have you, God would have us to know that the head of every man is Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 and 2. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Role reversal, problems, struggles. He remained without any visible sign, that circumcision. And by the way, it took him, took him years to even circumcise Isaac, which he finally had to do, the promised child. But that sign, that sign of Christ, who circumcised our flesh on Calvary, that circumcision that took place positionally has to enter into our experience. But that sign pointed in faith to the inviolable, unchanging character of the promise of God. 
through Christ. They're all yea and amen. They're all unconditional. As far as God is concerned, and they are fulfilled. But Yahweh now appears to him. He's 99 years old. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis, the 16th chapter, and you get into 17 and verse 1, okay, and there he's 89 in the 16th chapter of Genesis. Now, when God appears to him, he's 99 years old. 99. He was 99 years old. It was 24 years after. You want to talk about God him being patient in time and dealing with us to work in eternal realities into our mind, into our thought life, and that be the thing that lead us through and not cause us to settle down? What do we see? We see 24 years after he called him out of the earth of the Chaldees. And by the way, this is crystal clear when you see it. Not till Abraham's daddy, his father, died, did he go forward. See, a separation of natural family. Got to be a separation for God to work in us as individuals. Even in those that we love. Even in those that we have in a local assembly that are natural family, but, but even far more, no more natural in that sense, spiritual family. He still has to work in us as individuals. So that we have a proper exchange, and what is, and that proper exchange is called a fellowship. We give, to, we give in our portion in Christ to one another. That's why Ephesians 5.21, we reverence Christ in each vessel. 24 years after he left, now it's 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. It's where all your terrorists come from, by the way. You're, you're, you're all that. The production of the flesh, Ishmael. The hand of, hand of every man will be against him, and his hand will be against every man. Check it out in Genesis, the 16th chapter. All of Israel's enemies were as a result of that. The flesh. Just like ours. Well, 13 years it took for the effect of that covenant to prepare in him for God to be able to execute it in him and going forward. Not just for himself. See, God gives us portions in the local assembly, not just for ourselves. It's for the benefit of the whole. Ephesians 4 and verse 16. And then he appears to him with a visible sign. And that sign is, he says, I am Al Shaddai. I am Al Shaddai. One of these times we're going to get into all the different names of God and all the different names of Christ. But right here, he appears to him and he says, I am. Exodus 3 and verse 14, I am. No beginning, no end. He, he is I am. And he's the I am that's with you. And he's the I am that calls you. And he's the I am that never leaves you nor forsakes you in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Because Jesus Christ who put on humanity in Hebrews 13, verse 8, is the same yesterday in eternity, the lamb. Today, presently, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb that we can feast on. And, and forever we will feast on him. And we'll be in that place where there won't be, there won't be any noise or confusion anymore. There just won't be any more. 
and uh, we'll be like them. We've been delivered from the power of sin just as much as they in his presence. We haven't been yet delivered from the presence of sin because God uses it not to tempt us, but to reveal to us and to test us where our true dependence is. And he's getting us ready. He's getting us ready to fill our place around the throne and to worship and to worship and to hear the only words we'll ever hear for all eternity, the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb, where all our worth is. So here we said, we see, he says, I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Mike said in the prayer, there's no shame. There's no shame because there's no blame in our position. But is that the experience of the believer? And should it be? And will God teach us by it? At the establishment of the covenant, listen, which God had manifested himself to be is Yahweh. I see, I hear, I've come down, I am with you. What am I all about, we shared last night. What am I all about, God? What am I all about in my circumstances and situations? And who are you, God? What are you all about in my circumstances, in my situations? And he makes it clear. The answer to both is, I am with you. He couldn't be any more with us, any more near us than to be in the acceptance of the beloved of his son in Ephesians 1 and verse 6 and Colossians 1 and verse 13. God had manifested himself as Yahweh. And here, Yahweh, some say Jehovah, and we'll explain that at a different time, described himself. Listen, he can only describe himself. And when he brings us to the place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness, then he meets us. He meets us in death. He meets us in circumcision from the flesh. He meets us, and he meets us with life, like he did, finally, with Sarah. When she doubted him in Genesis 18, 12, to 14 and 15. Finally, she mocked. She mocked with doubt and fear. The enemy caused her to mock God with doubt and fear and a lack of trust. Finally, she did laugh. In Genesis 21 and verse 6, because God so overwhelmed her in her helplessness and hopelessness, he so overwhelmed her that she laughed. And God would have us to listen down through the corridor of time where we are and hear her laugh. Her overwhelmed joy and laugh when God came through and did what only he could do. He's mighty. He's strong. And it means to be strong. It means to be strong. And that word there always means Al Shaddai belongs to the sphere, the location of salvation, constant deliverance constant deliverance. And he himself is describing himself as the unconditional covenant God who possesses the power for you and I to realize and experience his promises. And he can't lie, Numbers 23 and verse 19. Circumstances and situations, when we look at them, become a lie because they don't meet us when we think the time of the provision should be there. Fact of the matter is, this morning, in this beautiful time that God's giving us with the word here, that, that, 
He's giving us, when we submit our will to him, to possess the power of an experiential realization of his promises. Listen to this. Even when the order of nature or my circumstances and situations present no prospect of their fulfillment, well, I guess it's time to change. No, don't you dare meddle with them that are given to change in in Proverbs 24 and 21. Don't, Don't do that. Husbands, you take the initiative. And in doing so, with Christ as your head, you protect yourself and those that you love most dearly. It's the only way you can do it properly. And I can do it. No prospect of their fulfillment. And the powers of nature were insufficient to secure it. What makes us think that we can get happiness even by the material things? We make more of the importance of material things, money, jobs, places to live. Read Matthew, the sixth chapter. Those are the things that cause the anxiety, that become the the distraction, the breach, to separate us from experiencing Christ. Well, even they're insufficient to that. Why? Listen, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16. Who's sufficient for these things? Well, who's dealt with all things? In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, are all things for my sake? Well, they will be if my spirit is is submitted and I'm thankful. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15. Are all things of God who's reconciled us already positionally? In in, In 2 Corinthians 5, 18, yes. And that's why in Romans 8, 28, all things, all not some things, all things work together for the good. God's good, agathos, God's divine good. He's invested his good, who he is in his very nature and the plan that he's given us as individuals. Has nothing to do with the sight of humanity. Even the battle's not ours. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 and 6. And in, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, we wrestle not against blood and flesh. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, it's against principalities and powers. And don't let them instruct you that material things will be your source of comfort. Because they won't be, ultimately. Well, they're insufficient. Who's sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. Read those. Boy, I wish we had the time this morning. And we need to start taking more time to get the word in the way I believe God wants to. I really do. Who's sufficient? Christ is our sufficiency in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 because the believer, when they go back from Christ, experientially, they go right back to the law. And what does the law do? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in Romans 8 verse 2 has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's the law we go back to, sin and death. Like, just like Terah went back to his old association, his old place. And then he, there he died. There he died. Who's sufficient for these things? Christ is our sufficiency. He is. Uh, So many verses for this. So many of these verses. And and again, by the grace of God, if if we don't fill this, finish it uh, uh, tomorrow, Friday, or on Sunday, boy, we need to, I need, we just need this counsel from God if it's not by Monday. But the name here speaks of God's nature, his character, and what he's accomplished. 
the name which Yahweh gave to himself. You see, the name is the name and the nature that God himself has, has given to himself to give to us. We don't give him. We give him our will. That's it. We don't make him our Lord. He already is Lord long before any creation. He is Lord. He gave him a pledge, a covenantal pledge, that in spite of his own body now dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb, that God would still give him the promised innumerable blessings that would come from that one child. I'll close with this this morning and somehow I have to trust him because we haven't even, we're not even scratching it, you know, and uh, that might have to do with certain things. But what he's referring to is what God wants to say to us right now this morning. And this is in Romans, the fourth chapter, which is brought out in fulfillment here. Romans, the fourth chapter. And I'm going to read it to you the way the original has it, by the way. Okay, now here is, here is Romans 4 in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, Abraham. Before him whom he believed. Right? He believed. Did Abraham always believe God? Was God still faithful in the belief of who he was in himself? He believed. Even God, who quickens the dead. These dead thoughts that we have, he quickens them. But he's got to bring us to a place of self-hopelessness and self-hopelessness. And let me tell you, there's an order and initiation of this reality. It starts in the home. It starts in our homes, it does. In, it's individuals in our proper place in the home. And then we bring that into and become a joint that supplies in the local assembly. The dead, and cause those things which be not. I can't see them. Cause those things. What things? Everything that he's in control of. Cause those things which be not as though they were. Who, who against hope, <laughs> believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken. So will your seed be. Did God promise him that in, number, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3? Did he again bring it back 13 years later? Of 13 years of silence and him quitting and functioning in the ruins of what he thought was his end? And his end, his end he thought in himself, was God's end. It was only God's beginning. Because only God can begin when, he set, when we're separated from self unto him. And then into John, and then into Genesis, the 17th chapter. Father of many nations. You see, what God's doing in this is far more than just about us. First, it's just for his glory. Yes, it's for our intimate personal blessing, but it's for multitudes. That's the abundant life, not the selfish life. Not living for yourself and making your, what you think your problems are and these struggles about you and yourself and me and myself, any of us. Look what it says in verse 19. And being not weak in faith, was Abraham ever weak? Yes. But did he experience his weakness when he trusted God who was his strength? It says that. 
who being not weak in faith, now I'm going to tell you how it is in the King James, and I'll read it to you in the original. King James says, he, he considered not his own body now dead. You know what the original says? He did. God had to bring him and bring us to the place to see that everything in us, look at it, it's dead. doesn't say he considered not. He had to consider it before he would receive something that he couldn't do. He considered his own body now dead, because that's the place God had to bring him and Sarah to. He considered it now dead. There was no natural relationship that was going to bring life. None. That's why fellowship is about Christ, period, and nothing else. He did consider his body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Was there a time in week when he did? What did God have to bring him to? He has to carry us to a place where we wouldn't even think of going in John 21 and verse 18. But it's not just, it's for his glory, our personal blessing, but for multitudes. Because when he finally carried Peter, and we, do we learn from Peter's life? Things to do and things not to do. We'll close. He staggered not at the promise of God, did he? Did he? Yeah. He staggered not at the promise of God because God saw him in Christ, loved him in Christ, loves us in Christ. Listen, he loves us, and we'll close. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, strong in the grace that would lead them to go forward, giving glory to God, not glorying about our circumstances and situations, what we have, what we don't have, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able in supernatural ability and the strength of who he is in his nature and character to perform. He performs the thing that he requires in Job 23 and verse 14, but it comes out of a trial in 23 and verse 10 of Job. And he has to bring us to the place where we esteem his word in Job 23 and verse 12, more than our necessary food, details of life, finances, places to live, all this other stuff. He has to bring us to that place. And it is his love through grace that leads us. Father, thank you so much for your precious word in Jesus' name. Amen.